You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 30. Through the Southern Door. Raven. Abigail Gray, did meeting Lieutenant Jackson change your outlook on our mission here today? Did it change my outlook? I guess I feel real sorry for him losing his best friend months ago and only finding out now. Makes me wonder whether it's better to know or not to know. Might hinder your abilities to carry on a little less. If you could entertain the notion of them being out there somewhere. Happy. Them. Did you hope you wouldn't encounter Lucy Weatherfield in your future? Wow. I guess... If the options were to never see her face again, or to see her come back resigning herself to stay somewhere she didn't want to be, and how she actually came back, I'd go with the former. What did that girl's death mean to you, really? Do I have to answer this? It's for something specific that I'm writing on Weirwood. Okay. Okay. Well, it seems like when Henry realized Bessie was gone today, he was... Diminished, And I mean, right there in front of me, I felt like I was looking at half a man. That sense of unbalance felt familiar. But you can relate, can't you? Can't you, Raven? Losing your wife like that. We're talking about you, Gray. I didn't think Indians were buried in cemeteries. She wasn't, at first... Lady was of the Great Sioux Nation, which meant her people wanted her suspended from an eight-foot scaffold. So I built that with her brothers. Were you guys close? They thought I was an asshole. They seemed like perceptive gentlemen. Yeah, they were right about a lot of things. She was sewn into a hide bag, dressed in her finest clothes, along with her favorite possessions. I put her mandolin in there with her. I couldn't play the thing. But I kept her favorite pen. That one? This one. All these rituals were to honor her old life and abide by the wishes of her family. And how long was she up there? Well, her spirit had departed her vessel here on Earth after four days. And she had gone off to her new plane of existence. But that vessel was up on the platform for a year. A year? A year. Weren't you worried about, well, not coyotes, but I guess grave robbers? Shit, yeah, I was. Spent every night up there with a loaded pistol, just waiting for those fuckers to show their heads. Shot three men over that time. Don't think I killed any of them. Sheriff fixed it for me to avoid a hanging over the grievances. So you just sat there every night for 52 weeks straight? No, I didn't just sit there. I wrote... I did some of my best work on that back porch table with a pen and ink, a lantern, a bottle of whiskey, and a gun. So you didn't feel like half a man? No, I did. Still do. But half a man can still get a whole job done. And by the time that year was up, I was writing about new disturbances down south and back east. A lot of words for those things came filtering through. I kind of liked the parallel with the Algonquin's Wendigo myth. 
You coined that term? I had the idea at around the same time as a couple of other sharpened minds. But mine was the first that I saw published, so... Yeah, I'll take it. From the travel log of Raven, the woods of Jackson, Mississippi, July 17th, 1883. The doorway beckons. The air is folded around it, an open wound in the fabric of existence. It is breathing, framed by the forest which surrounds us. Major Butler stands at the head of an incursion team. He is flanked by Agent Pines, Lieutenant Jackson, and Jackson's six-man unit from the Vicksburg garrison, all done up in their Union blues. Behind them sits Steamheart, guarded by Oakley and Harrell. On board, Arlington, Gray, and Penrose watch from behind the reinforced glass of the cockpit in what we all hope is a place of safety. The boy, Private Miguel Alejandro Delgado, steps out beside Major Butler. He has experienced a new world before this one and survived its savagery. If anything, he is the most equipped to venture into this other place. He glances back at the tiger, his mother. She does not attempt to dissuade him again. Butler gives Oakley a nod and a tip of his hat, and the captain contains her response to a returned nod. Pine steps forward, squares his shoulders. There is no testing this doorway. He lifts his foot and steps straight through. Pines. My whole world changes. I'm standing in a forest. But it is so much more monstrous than the one I came from. Everything is tinged in a sickly, greenish olive light which leaches away the vibrancy of other colors. The surrounding trees are very thick around the trunk with dense foliage on top. But the bark is not like wood I have seen. It is slick, fluid, crisscrossed with pentagonal nodules. Here and there, vast bulbs stand ten feet high and five wide wrapped in leathery carapaces and wound with vines at the base which seem to curl and move. There are plants growing and flowering in different colors which I can still make out through the olive light as orange, green, and blue. All around me is grass, but each blade is wide and waist-high, as though I have shrunk to a height of two inches. The sky above is an ashy cloud through which rays of a cold sun push through here and there, illuminating pieces of the environment but not the whole place. Breathing the air makes me feel lightheaded, and I am surrounded by insects, large frightening wasps, dragonflies, and swarms of crimson gnats, all buzzing to and fro between the flowers. Through the undergrowth, creatures move and call to one another with harsh, aggressive cries. I am terrified that wendigos will be upon me in moments, and yet wondering if the version of them from this world is different. My theory has always been that midshipman Darian Clay, our patient Zero, was bitten by a creature over on this side. He was human but became something else. He ventured back to our world and spread the infection. But I still wanted to see what that creature that attacked him was. We debated back in Washington whether this could have originated as an airborne virus 
but my meeting with the very much human Bessie Flynn had at least eliminated the certainty that simply venturing through would cause transformation. Perhaps it was a bacteria or tiny organism in the water, able to multiply itself within the human body and spread to others through blood and saliva. But why would it alter our physicality? Why would it have such a specific effect? And of course, the idea Thomas floated most often was, who did this to us? What cold intelligence lay on the other side, sending this plague through in these three key areas, Mississippi, Canada, and Egypt, leading to the downfall of civilization in just a few years? In Arlington's eyes, it was too perfectly executed to be accidental. That is why I'm very happy to not be alone here. Miguel emerges behind me and checks his surroundings. Is this what Rama is like? I ask and cock my head. The sound of my voice has come out with an unusual quality. A slight, metallic echo. It feels louder inside my head as though I have lost my sense of hearing, yet the forest roars and chatters around us. No, this place feels very wrong. Butler emerges, followed by Jackson and the soldiers. The Major checks his pocket watch. All right, gentlemen, he says, cocking his head the same way I did as he hears the inner echo. We have 60 minutes from this point before they close the door on us. I don't need to tell you what a one-way trip this will be if that happens. So stay close, don't touch anything, guard Agent Pines, and let him observe and assess. Then we hightail it out of here and say goodbye to this place for good. The travel is slow and measured. Breathing is labored and I am feeling lightheaded. My vision swims and the pathway stretches out before me like a tunnel. We leave markers on the trees to delineate the way back. Red ribbons pinned to the wood, only in this light they're rusty brown and hard to see, and as the bark is sticky, the pins seem to slip and shift. Miguel holds up one hand for us to stop and points into the trees. Around the periphery, a dozen ape-like creatures, each about four feet high, with strong-looking arms and inquisitive blue eyes, are staring at us. We make no move to attack and slowly deliberately pass them by. They change their positions and swing through the treetops to keep abreast. They have auburn hair like orangutans, and I spot several munching on fruits they pull from the treetops, but those dark stares are unnerving. They begin calling a hooting, rising clarion that causes the soldiers to take aim. Stand still, shouts Miguel to us, then flips his mask down and screams at the apes, it is a terrible, raucous, tearing sound like he's in agony. He darts forward fitfully and seems like he's out of his mind. The apes retreat, staring harder at him, but clearly disturbed. <coughs> Miguel looks back at the group and raises his mask. Mongoose, he says simply. Someone else is screaming. It happened fast while we're all focused on Miguel. A soldier has fallen and is moving, being dragged by something. It takes us a moment to see what it is. One of the gigantic bulbs is leaned over and split apart, and inside is a horrific, fascinating maw, purple lined with fleshy padded areas, segmented and quivering with strength as the enclosure drips digestive mucus. I am transfixed as this wretched fellow is pulled quietly and firmly towards the mouth of the plant. His friends dive in and hack at the tentacles, spraying viscous yellow sap as they open fire upon the pod with their Winchesters. The jungle clatters with rifle shots as I watch this thing punched into tatters, slumping down with a hissing deflation. The soldier is alive, 
and now walks with a limp, jumping in shadows. My hand shakes as I write my notes on this newfound carnivorous plant life. We continue on, all of us watching the ground at our feet for trailing vines, and we see smaller versions of these same bulbs open up and drag insects inside them with their tentacles. As the pods get bigger, so does the body mass of their prey. Until a turquoise horsefly the size of a greyhound is being pulled into a bulb almost as big as the one we destroyed. Miguel moves between Butler and I and says in a low voice, The apes may have been trying to warn us. Butler absorbs this information and points at more pods growing far higher up on thick, fleshy-looking stalks. The bulbs have blackened and gone hard, looking for all the world like enormous avocados. Some have burst open, unwrapping their leathery skin to release spores which float away on the breeze, each with a little stalk and umbrella-like spray of feathered tendrils, like the seeds of a dandelion clock. Most seeds are a light blue. A few of them are heavier, larger, and yellow. We follow where the seeds are going and find a scattering of miniature pods growing among many blue flowers of a type which I saw earlier. They have vivid azure petals, a deep, shiny, blood-red center, and a strong, sweet fragrance that reminds me of grapefruit. At their base, thin red spines protrude at diagonal angles, each about a foot long. It is curious that such a different kind of plant should come from the carnivorous bulbs. I steer clear of the spines. Something down here. I move closer and see bones and scraps of blue cloth. Stay back, Miguel. Butler warns. Must have been from Bessie's team. Henry leans over, his face grimmer than usual. They left him. Wonder how much further they got than here. There's a sharp yell from behind, and one of the soldiers clutches at his hand. What is it? Fucking plant cut me. The soldier snaps. Oh, man. Oh, that hurts. Hold it together, Murphy. Henry commands. We'll get you back to the doctor. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. The man winces holding his hand under his arm. I can see blood creeping down his coat. Can I take a look at that? There's swelling around the laceration and a reddish-pink fluid that isn't blood. Yang, the medic of the team, applies a swift field dressing. There's another cry from across the way, but this one is not human. An ape is stuffing blue flower petals into its mouth and shuffling away, holding its arm. See, that poor fucker got stung and he lives here. Grimaced Murphy. Can we all just leave? I don't want anyone else to have to feel this. He holds up his now shaking hand. We look back the way we have come and realize the scattering of blue plants we trek through is a veritable woodland meadow, an ocean of those red barbs nestling below the surface. Shit, mutters Butler. Then more confidently, All right, man, Murphy's right. It's time we headed home. I think we can conclude that there ain't anyone worth talking to in the immediate vicinity. But this is only a forest. There could be cities just over those hills. Thirty minutes left, Pines. We aren't making contact with anything sentient today beyond those orangutan-looking guys. I survey the men. Frightened, resentful, angry faces. For one brief, insane moment, the following words pop into my mouth and almost make their way out. Just leave me here. But then I catch sight of the ape that ate the flower. He's behaving strangely. Body movement is slowed, and he is lilting sideways, 
almost as though drunken. The other apes he is heading towards back away, afraid. He takes some erratic, aggressive leaps towards him, bearing fangs and swiping clawed hands, gnashing those sharp teeth as spittle drips down to the earth. Not far away, one of the bulbs, ever so slowly, lowers itself to horizontal, then begins to open up. At the center, I notice now, is a little red feeler with glowing buds. The ape catches sight and sways towards it in a loping, stuttering gait. He is crying now, making sweet, enticing sounds, as if attempting to appeal to the dancing, shining red flower growing closer. The ape climbs into its mouth and lays down, as vines creep inward and gently encircle his limbs, tucking him into bed. The pod closes around his body, firmly sealing itself, before raising up to verticality once again, the ape inside still very much alive. We stare in absolute awestruck horror. Get us the fuck out of here. But nobody has been watching Murphy. Nobody heard his breath get labored and then frantic because we were all holding panic at bay. So when he bites into one of his teammates at the neck and crimson blood sprays across his now roaring face, we are neither prepared nor physically arranged for an escape. Murphy's eyes are orange and he rips at the soldier with savage hunger. Butler lets fly two bullets, one taking Murphy out, the other his victim. Another soldier reels back in fright, tumbling over the blue flowers which slice and spike into him through his wool uniform. He lays face down screaming in agony and dismay until Henry fires a bullet through the back of his skull. This was the birthplace of the Wendigo, and now the life cycle, the great mistake, is clear. This was a parasite that never should have encountered humans. We interrupted this nature in action, and we brought that mistake home. Everybody freeze! yells Butler. With supreme effort, we hold ourselves motionless while three bodies twitch on the forest floor. Don't run. You run, you get stung. Nothing we can do for you then. We have to walk out of here. There is silence among us. Now who's left? Delgado. Jackson. Pines. Bateman. Baron. Yang. And Butler. Okay now. We have plenty of time. We've walked real slow before because we had no idea what was out here. Now we do. We're going to go a bit faster this time because we have the way back marked out. Peron, you in the rear there, just turn about and lead the way. Peron does so and we hold ourselves together, retracing our steps. We are in sight of the door and the air is once again thick with insects when disaster strikes. Peron, still leading, finds himself fending off one of the wasps, which dart away from his swinging rifle butt. Miguel waves me urgently on as Bateman comes to Peron's assistance and aims a shot up at the wasp. I understand his thinking. It was the size of a rat. Who knew what its sting could do to a human? The bullet flies past the dodging insect and impacts on the hard, avocado-like form of an elevated bulb. Time slows to a crawl, and Butler cries out. Run. Run. The bulb explodes outwards, showering Bateman, Perron, and behind them, Yang with blue seeds and pink fluid. I reach the doorway just as Perron starts to scream, his voice dividing away into inhuman howling. Henry shoots Perron and grabs at the fallen Yang's collar to pull him to safety, but the man turns and snarls, slashing at the lieutenant's face. From beside the door, Butler shoots Yang before he can attack further, and then takes out Bateman. Henry runs our way, and we dive back through into the woods outside Steamheart. 
have been listening to episode 30 of Steamheart, Through the Southern Door, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Jeremy Pines, performed by Matt Wardle. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Henry Jackson, performed by Jacob Newburn. Miguel and Raven, performed by Alex Shaw. Bateman, Perron and Yang, performed by Matthew A. Siebert, Keddy Bredemeyer and Blaine Stewart, who also provided screams. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Movement Proposition and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, I'm finally saying his name correctly, I've been getting it wrong for years, I'm so sorry Mark. By all means folks, tell me if I'm mispronouncing your name. Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And New Century finally has a place to chat about it with other listeners and readers again. Back when we began this project in late 2013, there was the Gonzo Planet Forum, which had a section for New Century. Now, if you go to the School of Movies Discord servers... The link can be found on the School of Movies Twitter feed and on Patreon. And if you can't find it, just ask and I'll tweet it at you. There's a dedicated New Century section where people are already talking about their favourite books in the series. I'm personally staying as hands-off as possible to let you guys and girls cultivate a vocal fan community. And I feel like this is an episode you're going to want to talk about. Music